Welcome to the Nonprofit Digital Success Podcast. I'm your host, David. And in this episode, we're talking about the fundraising mindset with Cindy Wagman. Cindy is the president and founder of The Good Partnership, which is a values-driven, social justice-informed consultancy that's working to unlock the potential of small nonprofits through fundraising. She became CFRE in 2009 and received her MBA from Rotman School at the University of Toronto in 2013. She's presented for AFP, Canada Helps, Charity Village, Bloomberg, Kila, and Fundraising Everywhere. And now she can add to that list the Nonprofit Digital Success Podcast. She's the host of the top-rated The Small Nonprofit Podcast and best-selling author of Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul. Also, she loves to host people, but today she is a guest here. So thanks so much for joining in, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. So what are your thoughts in terms of what is it that people need to be thinking about to create that fundraising mindset? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is, I think we have to understand that most people's problems with fundraising are stemming from mindset. So very often when people try and learn more to improve their fundraising, they focus on the tactics. They're like, okay, well, I'm going to learn how to write better, or I'm going to learn how to ask for a major gift, or, you know, they, they look at the tactics. And what happens in my experience, especially with small organizations or what I call reluctant fundraisers, is that they're kind of ignoring their underlying feelings and beliefs about fundraising, which, spoiler alert, are not very good. And so what happens is those tactics, they learn and learn and learn, but they don't implement or they don't start to see the results. And I always like as someone who, you know, likes to eat healthy and stuff. It's, it's like trying to like make a decision about a meal where you have like a hamburger and a salad in front of you, but you love hamburgers. You're not going to reach for the salad. The salad is like, that's, that is the mindset, right? You need to work on changing how you think and feel about food so that you're going to reach for the salad if that's what you want to be doing. So it doesn't matter what we want. Our behavior doesn't always reflect that. And that's where mindset comes in. And I always, I mean, I have so many stories. I think most people who touch fundraising in some way have these stories of people like, I'll never forget, I was at, my husband and I were at a wedding many years ago. And uh, we were talking, it was like a someone he went to uh, grad school with uh, who was getting married. And we were chatting with another couple. I'm like, oh yeah, what do you do? And so my husband introduced himself. At the time, I think he was a political staffer. Uh, and so this was like a very political, um, crowd. So, you know, they were talking and then they looked to me and they're like, well, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm a fundraiser. I love what I do. I was like excited about it. And the guy like walked away. <laughs> He's like, oh, sorry, no. I have no money and walked away. Now, obviously that's an extreme example, but I have had people say very bad things about fundraising on the extreme. I usually it's like, wow that's really hard. I don't know how you do that. There's a story there. That is when we say things like that, that's a signal that there are some underlying beliefs we have about fundraising. And they're so prevalent and so dominant and so deeply ingrained that we can't see them. And that's where it's some of the brain science stuff 
comes in, which I'm happy to talk about, but really we need to unlock or change the way we think and feel about fundraising before we can actually sit down and do the work because we just will be too busy. Like we will choose to spend our time elsewhere. So let's talk about that for a second. I think, I think that's a really interesting point that you're mentioning is that there's some brain science happening there. So are our brains wired to prevent us from fundraising? Yes. Yes. I mean, in short, the long answer is our brains are designed to protect us from things that are threat and things that we don't like or have bad feelings about are threatening to our well-being. And so our brains are designed to keep us safe. And so what that looks like, if you look at how our brain determines what is and isn't safe, usually that's through repetition and experiences. And so as we go through life, our experiences start to inform our brain and our brain actually creates neural pathways or shortcuts to be able to make decisions really quickly. So the best example I have, I think is relatable. I hope other people can relate is like, imagine you are going to a new job and you have to drive there. And the first time you're driving there, you're a little worried because you want to show up on time. You don't know how long it's going to take. And during the drive, you're hyper aware. You're looking at your GPS. I mean, I remember when we had to, when we had MapQuest printed out or like pocket apps. Exactly. So you're like following the directions, you're looking at the road signs, you're paying attention to other landmarks and buildings. Your brain is working really, really hard to absorb information. Once you've been on the job for a couple months, that drive is like you could do it in your sleep, right? You know where you're going, you know where you're turning, you have your favorite music blasting or your favorite podcast. And you can be having conversations. Like I used to drive home from work talking to my boss and we'd still be working on the phone, right? Like our brain is in autopilot and it uses way less energy to do the exact same drive. That's what happens as we experience things. And if we look at our experiences around fundraising in society and our beliefs around the nonprofit sector more generally, they all lead us to think that fundraising is not a good thing. Like we think that we have to coerce people into giving, right? We have to trick them or use, like do things that are sneaky so that they we can get their money from them because they fundamentally don't want to give it. Or just the beliefs that our sector is less than, that we shouldn't be paid a lot. It's like a martyr syndrome, right? That we should be doing this work because it's good not because we need to earn a living. So all, and those experiences year after year after year start to become a shortcut or that autopilot in our brain that makes us think, okay, well, I don't want to do this because it doesn't feel good. It's not safe. Yeah, I think that's really true. Like how many times have you been on the way home, driving in your car and like, oh yeah, I need to go to the store. And then you end up on your driveway and you're yeah. like, oh, I forgot to go to the store, right? Because you're you're just doing the same thing over. It happened to be like last week, yeah. right? You're just doing the same thing over and over. We're creatures of habit. Yeah. We want to do, as you said, what's safe and what's comfortable 
asking people for money isn't always is, isn't a comfortable thing and not everybody can do it. Not everybody feels yeah. comfortable doing it. So how can we overcome that mm-hmm. feeling? Yeah. So the first thing is just recognizing it, right? Like we have to understand that there's a difference between our perception and the reality, right? But also that our stories are different. We are unique and our brains function independently. And so my stories around fundraising might, we have these sector beliefs, but then I might also come from a family where money was something we don't talk about. And so we have to start to identify, I always say like, whose voice is in your head? Where are these stories coming from that show up for us when we think about fundraising and what's uncomfortable about fundraising? So recognizing that is the starting point, right? To say that, okay, wait, this isn't true. This is like my brain sort of telling me it's true. So how do we separate that? And sometimes the best way to do that is actually just like catch yourself in the moment, right? Is to kind of be like, okay, wait, we're talking about fundraising now. Let me examine. Let me see. What did, what was my first reaction? And so often those reactions can be really fleeting or quick. And so we need to slow it down. Okay. So what, what did I just say? And and usually like, I kind of liken it to like a little detective or think about, I always, who's like really good at like poking holes and things either like lawyers or the insurance claim people. (laughs) So you're like, okay, wait, what did I just say? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? Because usually the shortcuts in our brain, the neural pathways are sort of reflective of our beliefs and beliefs are formed by a combination of our thoughts and our feelings. So the, you know, analytical is our thought, the, the rational, logical, and the feelings is the emotional. And so we have to first catch that belief. Okay, what did I just say? What does that mean? And then we can say, okay, what are the thoughts behind that? And what are the feelings? And let me start to unpack that and refute them. Like, where am I wrong? And it's a process, but you can't just force your way through it. These kinds of changes to beliefs actually take time. And in fact, if you think about that neural pathway that's created on the drive to work every day, it takes about 67 days for that to become a, a shortcut in your brain or an autopilot. And so, you know, oftentimes we hear 21 days to a new habit, but it's actually much longer than that. And so you have to keep doing this on repeat over and over again. And then I also like to give people like based on what your beliefs are, what are some little habits or little things you can do to change them? So one example is a lot of people have the belief that donors don't actually like to give, that we're creating a burden for them by asking. Now, most professional fundraisers know that's not true, but reluctant fundraisers are like, I'm bothering people by asking them. So I just say like, get to know your donors. If you can just meet with people or have a phone call and just ask them, why do you give to our organization? You're going to build the evidence enough of it over an extended period of time that people are, you're going to say, okay, actually, that's just not true. People benefit. They like giving. They feel good doing it. And our organization has value to them. Absolutely. And, you know, further to that, a lot of times big donors, I think, I think there's a different mindset that comes from major gifts versus these smaller, you know, five, ten, fifty dollars a month kind of gifts or fifty dollars a year or ten dollars a year, right? There's a different mindset that you need to approach it with, where if you're going after a major donor, you need to really understand them and why they care and 
how they're going to benefit from it and the people and how the money is going to be impacting the community or the people or the individuals or society or the organization or the building that you're trying to raise capital to construct, right? Understanding what that is. And that also comes down to psychographics, right? What is it that they care about? How are they spending their free time? What is it that would really drive them emotionally to connect yeah. with you? Yeah. And I think like I have a soft spot for the donors who give $50 a year. Like I think that there's a lot of similarity. The challenge is people get overwhelmed with like, we think major gifts, we're just going to raise a lot of money with one gift. Isn't that easier? But then a lot of people are like, well, I don't know anyone who can give. And so they get stuck there. But with donations that are smaller amounts and, and very regular, people are like, well, I can't scale that because I can't get to know, I can't build a relationship with every single donor, which again, like you don't have to know every single donor intimately, but if you start to get to know a, a good handful of those donors, you can start to see the, the same patterns. You can start to make meaningful, educated assumptions about those people and what they care about, where they hang out, what they like to do. And so we can start to build that same profile but it might not be one specific person. Now it's a group of people. And that will also help us ask those people more effectively. And when I say ask, a lot of people think face-to-face -face meeting. That's another shortcut that we've set up in fundraising education where we're like, the be all and end all is major gifts, right? You That is what we're all working towards. And like, I literally have people say, okay, when we're asking for money, we're pitching someone right? Which assumes face-to-face high-level gifts. There are so many ways to ask people for money. And the truth is you still need to understand who you're asking and why they give for them to give in a meaningful way that's meaningful for your organization and meaningful for them. So two things that I made a note of as, as you were talking that I want to dig in a little bit is if you're going to go after quantity versus higher value gifts, how is it that you can get to know these groups of, mm -hmm. of donors? Yeah, it, honestly, listening. I still want people to meet with them individually. Maybe you have 10, 15 meetings, but you still got to meet with people. We can't make assumptions. And honestly, people are really bad at telling you not true things. Uh, I don't want to say lies, but like, when you ask people, all right, how often do you want to hear from us? They're going to say once a month, but their behavior doesn't reflect that. They might actually read and click through your email you send every other week. And so people's behavior is a big indicator, but honestly, listening, having deeper conversations. When I worked at the business school, so you mentioned in the intro, I have my MBA from the Rotman School. I also worked there as a fundraiser. I was director of development for a few years. And we were kind of overhauling the alumni giving program, a lot of other things. So I was responsible for major gifts and alumni giving in a lot of different areas. I would go and meet alumni. I would just, whenever I could, I would go meet people and I would listen to them and I would ask them about the role that school had in their life at the time and now. And, you know, what do they do? Do they feel connected to a network? A lot of times, like specific to the business school, like they would compare their alumni network to other alumni networks, like at Ivy for other, for those of you listening in Canada, right? Like Ivy was considered probably one of the best business schools until Rotman kind of started climbing up. And I would say they're probably uh, neck and neck now. Anyway, I, I could go on and on about like, 
the value of the alumni network to them, but they communicated that with me. And then we built a program that reflected those values, that reflected what they cared about. And so I want to say there's no magic to it, but actually, like, I feel like this is kind of my secret sauce because not enough people talk about it, but you just need to meet with people and you just have to listen and be curious. And the rest, in my experience, if you're listening, if you're paying attention, the answers actually show themselves to you when it comes to the right fundraising strategies, how to engage them, how to ask. And I always think of it as a web, like, what am I hearing from those people and where that intersects with what is our mission? What do we do as an organization? What's true to our work and to our community? Is that community the same? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But yeah, so there's no, it's a little bit of patience, a little bit of curiosity and a lot of persistence. So in terms of meeting with people, what are your feelings of surveys instead of actually having conversations? So, okay, the like data people are going to disagree with me on this. So when I use (laughs) surveys to understand donors, I don't actually like the quant stuff. I don't want to know, I mean, like, sure, maybe I want to know your age range and stuff like that. Uh, And I understand the value of like standardized answers to evaluate information. I understand data very well. But when it comes to getting into the minds of our donors, I like to ask open-ended questions, which is like a nightmare if you want to analyze the data. Like it has, doesn't, it's not useful from that perspective, but what it does is it allows people to, in their own words, communicate the value your organization has to them and their beliefs. And when we do that, like you start to see patterns in the words that they use and the language. And does it reflect how your organization thinks and talks about your work? Like, is there a connection there? Is there disconnect? It helps you understand how to communicate with them and like what those heartstrings are that, you know, you can engage with as you communicate with them and not just ask, but send them updates and, you know, report back on your work and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. And as business owners, Right. We understand we need to know what it is that our ideal client or the type of people we want to work with, what they care about, what helps them get through the day, what their pain points are, what they're trying to solve so that we can help and we can provide, in our cases, services, sometimes products, right, that will help them out and doing the same kind of thing and bringing that mentality to the convert, not the conversation, but the analysis of the conversation is going to help you see themes through all of the stories and the and the messages that you're hearing from donors. Exactly. Right? And after that conversation, go and make a few notes. You know, like don't just like be typing on your phone as you're as you're meeting with them or anything, but take a couple of minutes after you have a conversation and just kind of digest what people yeah. are saying to you. Make notes about it so that you don't forget anything if there was something really key that was mentioned. Yeah. And have good systems, right? So um, especially in fundraising, but again, as a business owner, having somewhere where not where you can make the notes, but also learn if you need to follow up. So one thing that comes up for people a lot is they when I talk about donor meetings, they're like, well, what if they ask me something and I don't know the answer? And I'm like, that's a gift. That is a gift. You make a note and you say, you know what? I actually don't know, which is a sign of authenticity and vulnerability, which allows people to connect with you. 
And I will, I'll find the answer and follow up. And now one conversation turns into two or three and you be, you now are forming an actual relationship with, with this person where you can continue to connect. So there's so many fears that come up when we talk about donor meetings and getting to know your audience, but honestly, like curiosity and authenticity usually cure a lot of those. And having that door, like, look, let me take a step back for a second. The the people you're meeting with are already familiar with your organization, right? So any kind of butterflies that you have about having that conversation, the first few you're going to feel nervous and anxious about if you're not used to these kind of conversations. But kind of let all that go, right? Because they know about your organization. There, There's a level of trust there already. But being able to get a second conversation or a third conversation, we say that it takes about six to seven interactions with people for them to know, like, and trust you, right? And if they know, like, and trust you, look, they already know you, right? But can they trust you as a representative of the organization? It's going to take some conversations to build that. Yeah. And by building that trust, you create that connection, and they're going to be more willing to give to a cause where they actually know somebody there that they're connecting with. Yeah. I want to talk about trust because that comes up a lot, especially with major gift fundraising or when you are asking face-to-face because a lot of times donors feel like they can't trust fundraisers. I've actually had people say that to me and kind of fundraisers reinforce that because we'll say, oh, can you meet for a coffee? And then we'll be like, and once we're here and we're about to you know, leave the coffee, it's like, can you give us? few thousand dollars or something like that. That's not trustworthy. So what I like to do, and this starts right away, which is I am always transparent with donors around what to expect with interactions with me. And that includes when we're asking for money. So when it comes to meeting with donors, I'm going to say, I'd love to meet with you. Here's why and here's what to expect. So sometimes it's like, I just don't know you. And you know what? I'd love to get to know you. Um, Sometimes it's, I'd love your feedback on something. Sometimes it's like, oh, you just made this gift. Let me say thank you in person. Whatever it is, I am clear. And then we do that. And I don't do anything else unless it's like natural. Like I have had in those conversations, people be like, how can I support this? If they say that, they'll, we'll talk about it. But otherwise, I don't ask for money. These meetings are not asking for money. But when it comes to a meeting to ask for money, I will tell them that. I'm not going to ask you for a coffee. I'm going to say, hey, David, I would love to talk to you about a gift to our annual fund. Can we meet for coffee? Right. So, you know, the reason we're meeting for coffee and that builds so much trust so quickly. I actually think trust is very easy to build quickly. And it's really by doing what you say you're going to do and following up and following through. And the like factor, I don't know, that that one might be a little uh, more mysterious, but trust you can build really, really quickly with organizations. And when it comes to likability, like there's a wonderful author and researcher, Vanessa Van Edwards, who wrote a book called Captivate, which I actually need to reread because it's so brilliant. Um, But she talks about like how to really quickly connect with people so that you're captivating. And I think that's likability. And there's little tricks that you can do. And one of them is finding common ground. So very often we go into a donor meeting where we're like, 
here's all about the organization or like blah, blah, blah. Small talk has a purpose. So, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about dropping our kids off at school. And then we discovered that we sort of have went to the same high school for a little period of time. That builds likability. The small talk is really important. I had a donor with an organization where we were talking and she was telling me about her son was really into brewing. And like my brother was starting a beer business. And I was like, why don't, like they should connect, right? And actually her son became my brother's first employee, which is crazy. But that's what the small talk does. It builds connection in a way that allows people to feel comfortable. I feel like I talked a lot there about donor meetings, but <laughs> I can <laughs> I can go on. It's all good. It's all good. It it's important, right? To to build connection and create that human touch and the emotional connection that we have with people, even if it's for that fleeting moment, right? Because at some point down the road, you're going to need to talk with that person again or communicate with them or just have them part of your weekly or monthly or bi-weekly email series. Oh, yeah, you know, like I was just chatting with Cindy over at, you know, Rotman. And OK, yeah, so I'm going to pay more attention to that email, even if it has nothing to do with Cindy. Like everybody yeah. knows those emails are automated. Right. But it's staying top of mind. Right. I think that's really, really key, which brings me into. I guess the next thing I, I want to chat with you about is why do donors want to hear from us? They'll let, let them tell you that. Everyone will have a different, I mean, ultimately, if donors are giving money to your organization, they want to know what's happening with that money. They want to, they care about the work. And so they want to be updated on what you're doing. They want to know that their contribution is making an impact. But the specifics really do come down to what their motivations are for giving or what they think their the impact is uh, when they give. So ultimately, if we don't know what's happening, we're not going to give. We're not going to give. But most people, they want to improve the world. They want to improve some aspect of like our society. And that's what philanthropy is, right? Like it's like, hey, I want to see a change and I want to invest in that change. And so tell them how that change is happening because of their investment. I can't tell you how often I get letters in the mail with a, hey, can you donate? And there's a form in there to fill out and send back or a link for a website or something like that. It's like, I donated to you five years ago because I don't know, my, my one of my children through this like other thing, they were raising money. And so we contributed. Why haven't I heard anything from you? Yeah. What is what is the impact of this? OK, yeah, it might have only been thirty dollars or forty dollars. But so what? Right. Like it doesn't cost. You've got my email address. Right. It doesn't cost much, yeah. if anything, to send out a communication. Hey, here's what we're doing and here's what we want to do in the future. And here's how we're we're spending your money. Right. And like be in touch. Let people yeah. know what's going on. This is where mindset comes back. Right. So if we believe that our donors don't want to hear from us and I word for word organizations tell me we don't want to bother our donors. OK. So if we believe that, then we think we're doing them a favor by not emailing them. That is destroying our fundraising. And it doesn't, like, it's just not true, right? Our donors actually do want to hear. And so that's, again, like, 
so often we let those thoughts control our actions and behavior, um, but those thoughts are not real. They're not based on how our donors actually think, which is why you need to get to know your donors. Like if there's one thing that every person who's responsible for fundraising in one way, shape or form, like know your donors. That allows you, it allows your mind, your, your brain to, to rewire and show up differently. It allows you to improve your fundraising strategy and tactics and communications and all of it. So let's issue everybody a challenge right now. Okay. So what do you think about this, Cindy? If everybody were to go and spend over the course of a week, one hour, right? Do it in an hour at a time, do it in four 15 minute blocks, whatever works for you based on your schedule, the start of the day, the end of the day, after lunch, before, whenever, right? Take an hour from now over the course of the next five business days and to think about who their audience actually is and write it down, put it in a list and write down what you think that that person cares about. And this is really the first step to building your personas. And if you can build really solid personas that are, all right, you're not going to get everybody with it, but if you have four or five personas, you're going to get a majority, probably 80% yeah. of your audience in there, right? Yeah. And yeah. then you'll really understand what they care about. Have a couple conversations down the road in a month or in a week or two weeks, right? And start to see what they care about and see how closely that matches up and adjust your personas over time. Yeah. And don't wait. Like reach out now, just a simple email, like, you know what, I'd really like to get to know you. We're going into, you know, it's back to school and I'm reinvigorated or whatever the, whatever the reason is right now, just reach out and start asking. Not everyone's going to say yes to a meeting. I know that, but you got to keep asking. And if you want a second challenge, the next donation that comes into your organization, whatever the amount is, reach out to that person. Yeah. Pick up the it's phone, call a them. It's such an easy one because there's immediacy. You're already in their minds. So when people give is a great time to ask for a meeting or just call and say, thank you. That goes a long way. And, you know, I'd love to meet with you. Learn a little bit more about why you give. Even if it was a $5 donation. Every single donation. You can take it up a notch and you can send a little video too. I do that a lot with clients. Okay. All right. So (laughs) video. Yeah. You can use Loom. You can use Zoom and record something. You can. Just use your phone and just like record a video and and shoot it over. Absolutely. Video goes a long way. Yeah. hundred percent. Cindy, some amazing conversation today. Absolutely. On this episode about the fundraising mindset and the shift that people need to take. Do you have any last pieces of advice or thoughts that you want to mention? Uh, Just that if you feel like you don't like fundraising, you're not alone, but also it doesn't have to be that way. That's awesome. So I hope people listening have been able to get something really insightful from this. I know I have, and I want to challenge everybody to take one of the two challenges and do something with it and do it today. It takes action to create an impact and you need to do that starting now. So Cindy, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what do they need to do? So you can find us at thegoodpartnership.com. Same thing, The Good Partnership on uh, Instagram. My name Cindy Wagman on LinkedIn. And I have a book called, well, as you mentioned earlier, Raise It, The Reluctant Fundraiser's Guide to Raising Money Without Selling Your Soul, which you can buy on any major gift, uh, major 
Major gift. Major gift. We were just yeah. talking about major gifts. Any major retailer <laughs> or on our website, raiseitbook.com. Awesome. And you were mentioning that there's a little free offer that you've got. Yes. So if you want to get a sneak peek at the book, you can visit, uh, we'll include in the show notes, thegoodpartnership.com. I think it's slash audio. And you'll get the first four chapters of the book uh, on audiobook. That's awesome. Super high value content in that. I encourage everybody to go and check that out. From everybody listening, thank you so much, Cindy, for being here. If anybody wants any of the links or notes or info or the books that Cindy has shared, we're going to have that all on our show notes page. Just head over to our podcast page at nonprofitdigitalsuccess.com slash podcast. Click on this episode for all the details. Until next time, Keep on being successful.